morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, for those of you who have not been with us, we've been studying the book of Genesis, particularly, particularly looking at the story of Abraham. Uh, but we're taking a hiatus. For the next three weeks, we'll be doing a series uh, on worship. And the initial question is, why? Why are we doing this series on worship? Um, and there are a few particular reasons that we're going to be kind of delving into this. I think the very first and maybe the most fundamental reason is because worship is, is not some nice addition to our Christian life. It is fundamental to who we are. It is who we are. We are worshipers. We're going to look at a little bit of that today. And our, our goal in our life and all that we do is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, ever, as our catechism question and answer number one says. But there's a second reason. Some of you, many of you, uh, are fairly new to CCPC, and maybe even new to sort of Presbyterianism, and you've come into worship, and you've engaged in it, and you're wondering why. Why, why do we do X and not, you know, not Z? And why do we do this and not that? Or, you know, what's your reasoning behind all of this? And I think it's an opportunity for us uh, to explore why we worship the way we worship here at CCPC. So that you can enter in fully, in full accord, that together with one voice we can raise up and exalt Christ in his, his name. And then lastly, thirdly, one of the third, the third reason, um, and, and, and I would say the, maybe not the least reason, but it, it's lowering the totem pole, exalting Christ and, and sort of bringing everyone together in, in our worship. It, the third reason is it's important for us as a church to constantly be considering and reviewing our worship, to make sure that we are, in fact, worshiping according to God and His Word in a way that brings Him glory and brings us together as His people in love and fellowship and service. And I'll be talking more particularly about us as a family <clears throat> worshiping as we move forward. So the first Sunday, we're going to be looking at the one we worship. The second Sunday, we're going to be considering how we worship according to the word. And then the last Sunday, we'll be looking at the who worships and sort of what it looks like for the people of God to gather together and all its various uh, differences to come together in worship. Um, but I think it's important because we can sometimes fall into patterns based on preferences, culture, tradition, not necessarily any of those bad things, but we fall into them and not necessarily thinking critically whether it honors God or expresses our unity and love. And so just to give you a little bit of uh, a flavor, because we're going to do three sermons and then a Sunday school after that last sermon on the 10th of September, and to give you a little bit of an idea of where the session has been thinking, one of the things that is changing here at CCPC is we are no longer going to be having children's church. For those of you who've been a part of our church for a long time, this has been uh, part of uh, the rhythm at the time of the sermon. Children of a certain age go out and they get to practice the rhythms of uh, the worship service. But after some consideration and deliberation, we, we decided as a session, uh, uh, and I'll talk more about this, that it would be more beneficial at this point in the life of our church to have our little ones by our side in worship. We'll talk about what that looks like in, in very 
specific ways on September 10th during Sunday school. Um, and so if you have questions, you can feel free to come to me about them now, but I encourage you, come to that Sunday school. Um, we will be providing resources uh, for um, us as a family as we come together and worship. We'll be providing resources for families uh, and other people who want to come alongside those families. I know, Aaron, you're preparing some materials for, for the children of the church to help them to worship, and we'll talk all about that. So that's one of the, one of the changes that we're making. The other thing that we are planning to do is to create uh, a committee of worship, uh, particularly looking at music and worship. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh no, <laughs> oh no, there's going to be some wholesale change to our worship style, uh, come to CCPC because it's more traditional or whatever. Um, and then others of you might be like, finally, <laughs> finally, we can stop singing all these old songs and out with the old and with the new. Uh, be warned, our aim is neither to fossilize mm -hmm. or to evolve. Yeah. <laughs> neither one. Right? I am keenly aware that more than a few churches have broken up over worship wars. And if you go back through the history of the church, it's, it's fairly common. My hope is that this sermon series, along with the Sunday School that's going to be coming up, the, the one Sunday School class, my hope is that we will lay a foundation for that committee and for the work of the church and the session to thoughtfully consider how we as a church might best come together and glorify God with one voice in full accord to praise Him. Right? That's our goal. So if you're expecting radical changes or anything like that, not going to happen. But we are going to consider things. What, how can we do this the best possible way? Uh, there's much more to be said on this. Hopefully I haven't alarmed you, but readied you, right? Not alarmed you, but readied you to contemplate what it means for us to be worshipers of the living God. And with that, I want to turn our attention to God's word, for it is what governs our worship. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5. So with that, turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins to Revelation chapter 5. And now, I'll be honest, we're going to be looking at a little bit of chapter 4, but I'm not going to read it for time purposes, um, but I'll reference it. Uh, the two hold together, 4 and 5, um, but I'm just, going to read, I'm just going to read chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each 
holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and your blood, and, the, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Help us to worship you. Lord, we were made for this. You designed us for this, and yet in our sin, it's been corrupted. And even as I come and preach your word, there's corruption in me. Oh Lord, have mercy on me and have mercy on your people. Reveal to us the wonders of the Lamb who is slain. For we ask this in His name. Amen. In a minute, um, I'm going to argue that everyone, meaning all people everywhere, at this moment, are worshipers. Now you might say, well, no, my neighbor's probably in bed right now. He's not worshiping. She's not worshiping. They're all worshiping. Everyone, everywhere is worshiping. And it's no wonder that whenever we enter a church or we contemplate corporate worship, we all have ideas on what it should look like. And if I were to take a poll of you and said, okay, tell me all the things that you want in your worship service, I doubt that there are two people, two people in this entire room that have the same view of worship. We have all different ideas based on our childhood experiences, some of our cultural background, some of our theological background. Some of us, it's our personality, our temperament. We all come with different ideas on what it is to worship. And, and I'm going to look at that later. So hold that thought off for maybe a couple sermons. Because we are going to talk about distinctiveness in worship. But today... What I want us to note is part of the reason, this, this obviously is a fraught topic with many pitfalls, but the reason we have such strong feelings and opinions is because we are in fact born to worship. We are born to it. This is why we were made. And before we can dig into those specifics of worship, we have to begin here with this idea. We were made and redeemed to worship. And so I invite you, come. Worship. Bow down to your Creator and Redeemer. This is, this, is, this is all. This is a really basic sermon. That's what I'm calling you to here and from Revelation chapter 5. Come, worship and bow down to your Creator and your Redeemer. 
Now, I'm going to break this into three parts. First is we are created to worship God our maker. That's, that's what we are created for. Second, we are corrupted to worship the creature. That's our problem, right? We're corrupted to worship the creature. And then finally, we were ransomed to worship by the lamb who was slain. We were ransomed by that lamb to worship. And that's, that's good news. So we were caught in our own worship. We were created for it, and we were redeemed and ransomed for it. So with that, uh, those three points, uh, I want to begin with we were created to worship God our maker. Um, it's really hard to jump into the book of Revelation. Anybody that studied the book of Revelation knows that you, you don't just jump into it. Uh, you should take your time, you should study it, and then you'll end up in a million rabbit holes anyway. Um, so I want to lay a little bit of the context here. Uh, this is a vision. It's the best I can do, so just bear with me. This is a vision given to the Apostle John to help encourage the church as it was going to face trials and persecution and temptation. It was going to suffer. And so this is sort of the, the, the letter that was or the revelation that was given to John to encourage. That was its purpose. And so often we get lost in that uh, with all the details and all the strange pictures and images. But that was the goal. Um, you might liken it to this. It's like, a, like a, 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 a parent telling their kids, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to do this hard thing. And the kid is just feeling down about it. And the parent then steps over and says, let me, let me bring you in and show you a little bit, as best as I'm able to describe, to help you understand, to encourage you as we go into this difficult thing, what's going on. And you tell them all this parent talk, all this adult stuff, and the kid just doesn't understand. That's kind of like the book of Revelation. There's a, it's for us, but it's, it's challenging. And as little children, we come to God and we wonder at it. But it brings encouragement to the child, even though they may not fully grasp what the parent is saying. That's kind of what it's like. And what, what it is, is it's the veil is being brought back. It's like a cosmic veil over the grand plan of God throughout history. And it, it shows different sort of pictures of God's grand plan throughout. There's different vignettes and, and, and stories. It's actually the same story kind of retold multiple times. That, that's the book of Revelation in, in a nutshell. It's still very vague, but you get the idea of what God is trying to do. And in this section of the book, beginning in chapter 4, we have a vision. We have a vision of the divine throne room. And here the throne room of God is described in a vivid way in chapter 4. As John tries to express what he saw, he's describing the throne and what it looks like. And just to give you a sense, of, a little bit of what he says, he looks at the throne and he, it had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Something sparkling and wondrous and, and amazing. And that, but not only that, but there was thunder and lightning. That's a good time. <laughs> it's a picture as best as as John is able to articulate to us what the throne room included and in this throne room of course was the throne of the living God but around that throne in sort of concentric circles were different things and the closest thing to those concentric to, to, to the throne were these four living creatures who were they? well they looked 
Some like a lion and like an ox and like a man. I don't know. They were were glorious. They had wings and eyes on their front and on their back. They had... It's strange, right? It's weird. And, And outside those four living creatures are the 24 elders. Who were they? So these living creatures, maybe they were cherubim, some would say. But then there are these 24 elders on thrones surrounding the throne. Who were they? Some commentators think maybe they were representatives of the church before God's throne. Maybe they were the prophets and the apostles. Maybe they were angelic beings. I don't know. They were there to worship. That's what we know. That's what we see here. And they were representative in some way of worshipers. We know what they were doing. That's clear. In Revelation 4.8, we're told that the four living creatures, those closest to the throne, are saying continually, day and night, without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Over and over and over again. And following that, we're told that every time this happened, every time they sang, which was all the time, the 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before him and they sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Magnificent scene. A wild scene. A scene I can't really picture, but we get get a sense of it. Singing continuously that prompts these mysterious elders to cast down their crowns and bow and worship. Not to mention the throne room with all of its thunder and lightning and beauty and splendor. Yet even as we struggle to grasp the image, it leaves an impression, doesn't it? It sticks in our mind. An impression of the holiness and the majesty of God. As the one through whom all things exist. Mm -hmm. Everything is oriented towards him. All those concentric circles, and there's more, as we'll see in chapter 4, there's more concentric circles outside those those thrones of the elders. Everything exists towards him, to the worship of him. Everything is pointed that way. He is the one who was and is and is to come, the eternal God. In fact, the elders make it abundantly clear why they worship him. He is worthy. That's why they worship him. He is worthy to receive glory and honor and praise. Why? Well, he's the creator of everything. Of the heavens and the earth. As we stop and we contemplate who we are as worshipers and why we worship, it begins here. It begins with the object of our worship, the eternal one who is holy, holy, holy. Who is the Lord Almighty, who is eternal, who was and is and is to come. And we worship him because he is worthy of our worship. After all, that's what worship is, right? It's humbly fearing and acknowledging and praising and thanking and listening to and obeying and following and prostrating ourselves before the one who is worthy. That's worship. And this holy, holy God, this three times holy Lord Almighty, is the creator. And he created us. 
for this purpose. That's what makes him worthy of our worship. We read this earlier in our service, but he is our maker. It says in Psalm 95, come, let us worship and bow down. Why? Because he is our maker. We'll get to the other part of that psalm, which says, and we are the sheep of his pasture in a minute to talk about him as redeemer. But for right now, I just want us to fix our attention on this holy God who made us. The other thing that really strikes me in this text is that, in chapter 4 particularly, is that there is no end to the worship. Like, they worship for a little while, they take a break. It's constant. That's the, the picture. In fact, the, the creature's existence seems to be for that very purpose. Just to sit there and cry out, holy, holy, holy. We have to ask, is it our creaturely impulse to worship? How about to worship continuously? Is it our heartbeat? Is it our life? After God created the heavens and the earth, we're told that on the seventh day he rested from all his labors. labors. And I've often said that that, that seventh day stood out um, because... It wasn't just that God took a break. He wasn't tired in any sense, but he rested from all his work to bring attention to himself. And he called everybody else to rest in him. One theologian called this uh, the royal rest, if you will. That, that, That day in which all of creation stops to look at him, the creator of the heavens and the earth. It was a festival day for the creator of the kingdom. Now, all of creation, in fact, proclaims God's glory. That's part of its duty. Even Psalm 8 notes that the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars, the moon, the sun, all of it. The rocks of Christ. Everything praises God. Yet as his image bearers, Mm -hmm. as the crown of his creation, We are called to be reflections of His glory in a unique and special way. You and I have been given special privilege, and the way in which we worship looks distinct and different from the stars and the sun and the moon. Matthew Roberts, in his book, Pride, Identity, and the Worship of Self, says this of our role as image bearers. He says, so to be God's image is first and foremost about worship. We do not worship him in the inanimate way in which stars and rocks worship him, nor in the mindless way in which animals and birds worship him. We are to worship him with all the godlike faculties he has given us, with minds, hearts, lips, and hands in devotion to him. The purpose of an image is to bring glory to the thing of which it is an image. That's our purpose. It's built into our very nature, woven into our fabric. It's to love, serve, and glorify the God whose image we are. We are made to reflect the glory of God back to God. That's who we are. Is it, though? Is it? Is that who you are? Is that who I am? Do we live our lives in such a way that we reflect God's image back to him so that he gets all the glory, honor, and praise? First of all, I'd like to say, that is who you are. 
That's who God made you. That's God's creatures. That's his image bearers. But we have a problem. We have a worship disorder. If we've been created to worship God, we have been, sadly, by our own sin and fall, corrupted to worship the creation. I want to turn our attention to chapter 5 now. I've kind of laid out that picture of, of the worship of God as creator, but now I want, to, I want to look at the corruption that we see here. I want to turn our attention to chapter 5. There's a turn in this throne room scene. The beginning it says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, and written within, it was written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty and pro- an angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? It's an interesting picture. No one was worthy, right? That was the problem. There was nobody. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth, nobody in the seas. Nobody was able to open the scroll or to look into the scroll. And the text says that John begins to weep. And not just weep, but he begins to weep loudly because of that. No, right now you have all sorts of questions. What is the scroll? Why seven seals? Who is this angel? Why can't anybody open it? You know, this is what Revelation does. It's kind of like uh, starting a, a mystery novel. You start the mystery novel, and all you want to do is keep reading it because you're like, I don't understand. I got to get the answers. I need to figure this out. That a Revelation is a little bit like that. Sometimes the answers are available to us, and sometimes they're not. Most commentators think that the scroll contains the plans of God's judgment and redemption, and we see that unfold as we read on in chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 8. 7, of course, is the number of perfection. It represents completion or perfection in the Bible, and, and you might say that that this soul was completely and perfectly sealed and that there was, there was nothing that could break those seals. So that number seven represents that. And as for the mighty angel who speaks, well, we know that he wasn't mighty enough to open the scroll. As mighty as he was, as an angel of the Lord, he could not open the scroll. In fact, no one could. And it's a tragedy. That's how John feels. It's it's tragic that if these scrolls are not opened, all seems lost. That's how John feels. You see, you've got to remember that the book of Revelation is is about getting a glimpse into the goings-on of God and the bringing about of His eternal kingdom and His plan of redemption and judgment. And so if the scroll is locked up, if this plan is locked up and nobody can see it and nobody can execute it, how will it come to pass? What hope is there for the church? What hope is there for me and for you? That was John's feeling. Where is justice and salvation if these plans of God are not executed? Of course, this plan, this scroll, was written... Because of our worship disorder. Because of the corruption of sin that we have because we, uh, as image bearers of God. And this goes, of course, all the way back to the fall. Going back to Adam and Eve, 
in the garden when they thought that they could become like God. And so after that, they, they, the, all of humankind wanted to worship something else or someone else. Adam and Eve said, we don't need God. We do things our way. And the way we most often express our worship disorder is in idolatry, that is, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. When God met Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, what was the first commandment? We read it earlier in our service. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. And the second is like it. You shall not make for yourself any image, any graven image, and you shall not bow down to it and worship it. No idols. What happens? You know, sometime in the next month, they build a golden calf. The first thing they do as the people of God. Israel, as they came into the promised land, they were told very explicitly and clearly, don't go after the gods of the Canaanites. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. They're traps. Don't do it. And by the time you get to the end of the period of kings, Jeremiah says this. He says, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. Mm. And have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So the people of God are taken off into captivity. One of the, the challenges today, I think, as we look at idolatry and we think about idols, is that at least in the West, we tend not to make physical idols. It's not necessarily part of our idolatry. But I think it's helpful to remember those wooden idols, whether it was the Baals or the Moleks or the Astroth poles, the ancient people didn't view those wooden idols as the god. They were the objects through which they worshipped Baal. They had in their, their mind a god that was imaged in that idol, but the idol itself wasn't worship. And so they're not really that far off from us. I would say here's the difference. It's a, I think it's actually our idolatry is a little bit more on the nose. We, we let go of the, the wood and the, the metal and the, Stone, and we just make idols of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Instead of having surrogates to express our sinful desires in religious form, we just worship the self. It's actually more akin to Adam and Eve, who wanted to be like God. We want to be free of God. So instead of carving wooden idols, we reshape ourselves and redefine ourselves and so worship ourselves. Matthew Roberts, again, in the book that I already mentioned, is called uh, uh, Pride, uh, the Idolatry of Self. He goes into this thinking. He sort of play, goes down into this modern conception of idolatry, and he defines our idol for us, he, or he identifies it. That's a better way to put it. He calls it the, the idol of the free self. We want to be free. That's what we want more than anything else, the idol of the free self. He puts it this way, to make freedom from God the highest aim of all is to worship sin in itself. The idolatry of the free self is, if you like, idolatry in its purest and simplest form, pride. He'll go on to talk at length in his book on how this is particularly expressed culturally in our world. So he looks at issues surrounding gender and sexuality. I actually... I would say of all the books I've read on gender and sexuality, this might be one of, and I 
just recently read it, so it's clearest clear to my mind, but one of the most helpful books I've read because it situates the issue not so much in sexuality or gender, but in our heart issue of idolatry and, and worship. And it makes sense of it, at least for me. I, I highly recommend reading this book. But for Roberts, the core issue is this. It's worship. We are all worshiping. The secularist who claims not to believe in God is worshiping. It's just a matter of who and how we worship. And I think it's important for us to ask the question, are you worshiping yourself? Are you trying to define good and evil? Again, he argues that idols function to justify sin. That's that's why we make gods, so that we can justify the things that we want to do. We, We create gods and we make laws that flip God's law on its head so that we are free from him. But this, this idol of the free self is not just found in the house of our secular friends and neighbors. You'll remember the book of Judges. There was It's such a messy book, but at the end there was a priest who, who would carry around these household gods. We, we do the same. We set up household idols. We set up the idol of free self in our own homes. Let me, let me play this out just a little bit. I think it is our nature, especially as Americans, to prize freedom above almost every, everything else. We're the, the land of what? Freedom. Right? And there's a lot of good things about that. Until it becomes an idol. And it can be an exposing moment when we come across something in Scripture. Have you, you had this experience? that challenges this free self-idol that we often build up. We come across something in God's Word that says, I know God requires X. It just doesn't seem to feel right. Have you ever have you ever said that? That must not be what God meant. So then we go flipping through Scripture, we look at our commentaries and, oh no, this is what God meant. Well, you know, things have changed. We need to change with them. We start to do damage to God's word. It sounds much like what happened in the Garden of Eden when, when the Lord said, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And the serpent comes to Eve and says, What? Did God really say? We do that. It's our part of our worship disorder. We want to do things the way we want to do them because of our sin. We make justifications for the sin. Sometimes we go so far as to say Scripture is wrong and the things that it says are not just indifferent, but they're actually evil. We need to adjust things. Calling evil good and good evil. Uh, I I often joke in the uh, membership class that we love all ten, or I'm sorry, we love all nine of the Ten Commandments. Because when we come to the commandment that says, keep the Sabbath holy, we think, what does that mean? Does that really mean we're not coming to worship every Sunday? What if I have something going on? Does it really matter if I skip? To me, it's, it's, a, real, it's a telltale when we do this, because this is the heart of the issue. 
This is who we are. We're created to worship. And it's always interesting to me to think that that's the first commandment to fall by the wayside. Friends, this is idol worship. Instead of reflecting God in our lives, we reflect our disordered, sinful heart. And until we come to terms with this truth, that our fundamental problem is a worship problem, we will continually struggle to find the worship of God either desirable or good. Some of you are here this morning because you feel like you have to be, not because you want to be. And you desire to walk out right now. You feel that intensely inside of you. You know, oh, I know this is right. I know I should be doing this. But if you're honest with yourself and you think about it, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel like ah, I don't want to worship? It's because of your first love. Your first love is you. You just want to do you. You want to sleep in, you want to play golf, you want to visit friends, you want to scroll Instagram. And it's a strong feeling. So strong, in fact, that to be here feels like a threat to your functional God. Oh, I just can't wait to get out of here because I want to do what I want to do. You're irritated, you're bothered. Maybe you don't have to come next week. I think we've all felt this way. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all felt this way. And here's the problem. It ought to cause us to weep. This God, this idol, Roberts calls it the free self, you could call it the autonomous self, self-worship, whatever you want to call it, it isn't a God at all. Friends, you're a creature. You're frail. You're broken. You're dust to dust. Created to worship the living God, the one who made you, to reflect Him, to praise Him. And yet, because of your sin, because of my sin, I, I rebel. And, and Paul's clear in Romans 1 what we do is we exchange truth for a lie. And when we worship the creature, we are actually bringing condemnation on ourselves. It brings us into judgment and under the wrath and curse of God. And He gives us over to it. Mm those lusts and desire, the way we want to image God ourselves. And what happens? It brings about judgment and death. Even some of us want to escape and we can't. Our hearts trouble us and go off on our own. But here's the good news. We are under the sovereign rule and judgment of God. And our rebellion against our Creator, though it deserves death, is not the end of the story because the scrolls were, in fact, opened. You see, you'll never satisfy your functional God. You'll gain the whole world, do exactly what you want for the rest of your life, and you'll find yourself chasing one pleasure, one lust after another with no satisfaction, I promise you, so that's not what you were made for. And so that quandary, that, that struggle that we have, we can't escape the clutches of our idols, but we have hope because there was one who came and opened the scroll. One who is able 
John weeps, but the angel says, Weep no more, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has come, the root of, the, of David has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Friends, we have been ransomed. We have been redeemed to worship the lamb, the lamb who was slain. This is where I want to close this morning as we think about ourselves as worshipers. I know what it's like to chase after idols. I'm sure you know what it's like. And sometimes as Christians, we weep over that. We, we come in and we say, Lord, I care more about my own pleasure, my own desires, my own feelings, my own wants than I did about you. And I'm weeping over that. But all praise be to the Lamb who was slain. Notice what it says here in chapter 5. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and a signal of strength and power to the perfect amount. Seven eyes seized perfectly. Seven spirits of God which are over all the earth the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that goes out into all the world. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. A new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. This is the good news, friends. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself as a lamb who before his shearers is silent, went to the cross and took upon himself the judgment of God, the wrath and curse that we deserve because of our worship disorder, because we desire to be God in our pride. And he took it upon himself shed his blood. He was crucified. He was died. That we might be bought back. That we might be taken back, ransomed, redeemed, bought, so that we might once again reflect God as his image bearers and worship him and sing this new song Worthy are you. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, uh, by for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, you can't fix your worship disorder, but the Lord Jesus Christ can. And his spirit can enable you to worship and to enjoy and to treasure, and to delight in, and to bow, and to serve the living God once again. Only through Jesus, the Lamb who is slain. All praise be to Him. Let's pray.